I don't know about you, but for me, it feels like decades since we've been in the book of John. Does it feel that way to you? Yeah, it also feels like decades, the length of our study in the book of John. But there's so much there. It is so rich and so, so good. We return today to our series titled Believe, A Journey Through the Gospel of John. I hope that you enjoyed the B-I-B-L-E series. Did you enjoy that? That was fun to me. I, I, really, I really had a good time. So about half of you enjoyed it, about half of you are ready to get back to John, and that's fine, that's fine. Uh, you know what, in that series, the B-I-B-L-E, I really hope that you acquired some tools that will help you to study the book of John on your own or any other book of the Bible, of course. Uh, but as we, we kind of track through the book of John and study through the book of John as a church, uh, for you to do that on your own and study the book of John would be a really, really Great idea. So for those of you who have maybe forgotten and for those of you who are joining us for the very first time, let me do a little bit of a review before we jump into the passage that we're studying today. <clears throat> the Gospel of John was written by a man who was in his 80s, uh, about the time that he wrote the Gospel. Now, this man started to follow Jesus as one of Jesus' disciples when he was very, very young, when he was in his teenage years, maybe about 15 years old. And as uh, Jesus was crucified, uh, resurrected, and uh, ascended into heaven, uh, a number of individuals began to write biographies of the life of Jesus. Matthew wrote one. It's the gospel according to Matthew. We just call it Matthew for short. He was a follower of Jesus. Mark wrote one. He was very good friends with Peter, who was a follower of Jesus. Luke wrote one, very good friends with a number of the apostles and a thorough researcher himself. And then John wrote one. John was very, very close with Jesus. If you could say that Jesus had a best friend, John would be that guy. John was the only one left of all the apostles when Jesus was crucified. Everybody else scattered, denied him, betrayed him, whatever, and ran for the hills. But John stood by him so much so that when Jesus was actually on the cross dying, he looked at John and he says, John, you need to take care of my mom. Now that I'm gone, and likely Joseph, his earthly father, was gone at that time too, he says, he says, now that I'm going, you need to take care of my mom. They were very, very close. In fact, John describes himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. That's probably why he waited until his 80s to write it, because then all of the other disciples were dead by that time, and they couldn't dispute it, right? So he calls himself the disciple Jesus loved. There's nobody around to go, hey. No, there's nobody around to do that. So John could just do that himself. And this uh, biography of the life of Jesus we call it a gospel. That's the genre because it's not simply a biography that's designed to give you information. John doesn't just want you to know stuff about Jesus. He's trying to convince you to do something. And that's something he states in John chapter 20. He says, but these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing, have life in his name. In other words, he says, okay, look, I want to introduce you to this man, Jesus of Nazareth, and I'm going to tell you some stuff that he did and some stuff that he said and the type of person that he was because I want you to place your active trust in him, Jesus, as the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, the expected one, the God-sent one, and as the Son of God... Uh, it, even more so than that, the, the very uh, God in the flesh. And, and, and when you do that, when you believe that he is the Christ, the Son of God, and place your active trust in him, you will receive life in his name. Now, 
What he does in the first half of his gospel is he records a a prologue. He begins this way. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. In other words, Jesus is the very word of God, and that word of God became flesh and dwelt among us. And he says, and we have beheld him. We have touched him with our own hands. We've seen him with our own eyes. And then he starts to go, okay, here are the things we saw. Here are the things we touched. Here are the things that we saw Jesus do. Water into wine, John chapter 2. Conversation with Nicodemus, John chapter 3. Conversation with the woman at the well, John chapter 4. Several miracles, several statements of Jesus' own identity and divinity. Uh, Things like, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the bread of life. I am the shepherd. I am the gate. I am all of these things. And then at the end of the first half of his gospel, that's chapters 1 through 11, there's a transitional chapter, and then there's the final, uh, or the second half of his gospel, that's chapters 13 through 20, and then there's an epilogue. And so where we are today is in that transitional chapter, right between the first half of his book, where he's talking about Jesus' activity, and the second half of his book, that takes him like six or seven chapters to describe the events of one week. It's Passion Week. Jesus rides into Jerusalem for the final time. Eventually, he'll be betrayed by one of his very best friends, turned over to the Roman authorities, flogged, beaten, crucified, dead, buried, and resurrected eventually. And it takes John a very long time. So so think of it this way. In this transitional chapter between the first half and the second half, the pace of John's gospel comes to a grueling halt. You thought it took us a long time to get through chapters 1 through 11. It's going to take us a lot longer to get through chapters 12 through 20 because John wants us to. He wants us to feel it. As I read this chapter this week, it's just the first six or seven verses that we're doing today. As I read it... John wants to engage all five senses. He wants us to be in the room where this is happening. He wants us to see the faces. He wants us to smell the perfume. He wants us to feel it in our bones. This is not just informational. This is experiential. He wants us to be in this place with Jesus. I thought about setting up like a little dinner table and all that stuff here, but I thought that would be kind of hokey. So just what, what I need you to do is as we read this text, put yourself in the room. Don't just listen. And if you need to close your I'm just going to read it. That's it. And then we're going to talk about it, okay? So if you need to close your eyes and picture yourself reclined around a table, because that's how they used to eat back then, reclined around a table and talking with Jesus and his disciples, if you need to do that, picture yourself in this room, because John wants us to feel this inside, okay? We ready? Here we go. <clears throat> John writes this. John chapter 12, verse 1. Six days... Before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Thank you, John, as if we need to know which Lazarus that is. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard. And anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet 
with her hair. Can you picture yourself there? It's a little bit of an awkward situation, isn't it? (laughs) Here you are reclining at the table eating. This woman comes in, breaks an alabaster uh, flask of pure nard. This is very, very fragrant perfume. Very unique. When you smell nard, you know it. And likely, because this is a very expensive, John tells us, a very expensive perfume, this is likely Mary's life savings that she's now dumping onto the feet of Jesus. It's just going away. Uh, Could have been up to $100,000 kind of modern worth of nard, ointment. She's dumping on his feet and anointing him. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Now our sense of smell is engaged. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and gave to, given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to whatever was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it. The original language there is because she intended to keep it for the day of my burial, to anoint his body for burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Let's pray together. Jesus, may we put ourselves in this room with you. May we see something in Mary, perhaps in Judas and Martha. Above all, may we see something in you to emulate, to worship, that would cause us to have this very same response that Mary did of giving all just to honor and worship you. In Christ's name, the people of God together said, amen. Now, in order to understand John chapter 12, there's something happening here on the surface, obviously, right? Mary comes in. She breaks this alabaster flask of ointment. She's anointing the feet of Jesus. She's worshiping him. She's crying at his feet. She's wiping. She's taken down her hair, which a Jewish woman would not have done in public in first century Palestine, taking down her hair and wiping his feet with her hair. That stuff is so smelly, Mary would have smelled for weeks after that. For weeks. I mean, she is really given it all. And we could look at that and go, okay, so that's ours to emulate. We worship Jesus that way. We turn over everything. And that's true. That's true. It's a great way to read that passage. But there's something happening underneath here. There's kind of a second layer of stuff happening. And that's what I want to focus on. And the, and the, the, the first step in focusing on that is we got to take a look at Matthew chapter 5. Jesus says this, uh, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So when a first century Jewish listener would have heard this, they're thinking of the Mosaic law, the first five books of the Old Testament. They're thinking of all the prophets, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Hosea. And Jesus is saying, I've not come to break them, to abrogate them, to get rid of them, to abolish them, to delete them. I've come to fulfill them. So we're going to say this in a very, very biblical way. And then I want to say it a couple of other times in the NLT, the New Lucas translation, because I'm a little simpler guy, okay? So here's the highly biblical way to say it, that Jesus came uh, to fulfill the Old Testament law and prophets. 
Jesus fulfills the Old Testament law and prophets. He fulfills them in a moral way. That is to say, he lived a sinless life, totally spotless, uh, lived up to the expectations that God had laid out for you and me, those expectations that we could never live up to. He lived up to that, and he completed the, the law and the prophets. He fulfilled the law and the prophets. But there's a couple of other ways in which Jesus came to fulfill the law and the prophets. A couple of other ways to just look at this from a different angle. So we could say that Jesus completes the Old Testament story. What God had begun to do in terms of redemption, what God had begun to do in terms of making all things new and restoring original creation, Jesus came to inaugurate and eventually consummate that kingdom. He came to complete the Old Testament story. The converse is also true. We could say that the Old Testament brings form and shape to Jesus' role. It, it, it forms, forms, Old Testament forms bring shape to Jesus' role. That's absolutely not good at all. Look at that. Look at my, look at my English here. Everybody say, Lucas, that's horrible. I'm serious. One, two, three. <laughs> like, Marilyn, I can hear your voice over everybody else's. Why, why is it that you seem so excited to say that? We're fr I thought we were friends. I thought we, no, I know. I know. Thank you so much. You're so sweet. All right. Upstairs in the booth, the Old Testament brings form and shape to Jesus' role. If you guys would fix that for me because I'm starting to sweat, that'd be awesome. The Old Testament brings form and shape to Jesus' role. In other words, if we understand Old Testament motifs, Old Testament patterns, Old Testament forms, the word form is defined this way. Let's just get to the next slide. Here we go. The old form is defined this way. Next slide. <laughs> now they're messing with me upstairs. All right, form is defined this way. It's the shape, the visual appearance, or configuration of an object. So uh, as we understand the Old Testament more and more, because sin, honestly, Jesus understood himself within the context of Old Testament forms, patterns of behavior, uh, rhythms of worship. That's how he understood himself and his role. So that will help us form and shape and configure Jesus' role. It will help us to understand who he is and bring some sort, sense of identity to what he's up to. So now let me say this in the simplest way I possibly can. And this is the way that it's easiest for me to understand. Do you guys like Jell-O? I love Jell-O so much. I said this a couple years ago, actually, in a sermon. I said, I love Jell-O so much. And a friend of mine at Canadian Thanksgiving made me Jell-O because she thought I was joking. She's like, ha, 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 I made Jell-O as a joke, and I ate it all. I love Jell-O so much. Like, I really love Jell-O. And here's the deal with Jell-O. When you make Jell-O, what do you do? You take the Jell-O mix, right, and you take hot water, and you pour it in, and you stir it all up. And before you do anything with it, what do you pour it into? A Jell-O mold, Right? A jello mold. Because if you just pour it out, it's just going to go everywhere. If you pour it into your refrigerator, it's just going to go everywhere. So you pour it into something that's shaped like a star or shaped like rings or shaped like a block or whatever it is. And then you put it in the refrigerator. It congeals. You pull it out. And the next thing you know, you've got some kind of shape of something uh, that, you've, that you've made of, of, of jello. So think of the Old Testament, and we'll go through five today. We're going to talk about five. Think of Old Testament forms and patterns like a jello mold, okay? There's a shape there. It's not filled up with anything yet, but there's a shape. It's a star. It's a circle. It's a square. It's something. There's a shape. 
And then when we take Jesus and pour him into that shape, pour him into that particular time and place in history, his life begins to take shape and we begin to understand who Jesus is and what he's done for humanity, what he's done for his world, and what he's done for you and me. In other words, in this particular analogy, Jesus is the what? Jello. Okay? Jesus is the jello. And if you're taking down notes, this is brilliant. You should write this down. This is really, really good. So, in other words, as Jesus, as the Word becomes flesh and dwells among us, as He's poured out into this Old Testament context, His life begins to take shape. And I want you to know, listen closely, in John chapter 12, what's happening kind of under the surface, in between the lines there, is absolutely John recalling and reminding us of these. Old Testament forms and shapes so that we understand who Jesus is and what he's up to. We're going to go through five. We'll just start with the first example here. You'll start to get the hang of it. At the end of John chapter 11, John tells us that the Passover of the Jews was at hand and many went up to the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. Then at the beginning of John chapter 12, you notice that John said this, six days before the Passover. This is happening six days before the Passover, this dinner that Jesus is at. In other words, John wants us to know that it's the what? Passover. Right? It's the Passover. He's repeated that word three times. He said it three times. Today is the Passover, or it's, uh, it's six days in advance of the Passover. The Passover's coming. The Passover is looming. He keeps telling us that it's the Passover. Now, if you don't know what the Passover is, let's rewind to when the nation of Israel was enslaved in Egypt. They were being beaten and flogged and mistreated and worked. They were told to make bricks without straw. They were being... Uh, uh, just taken control of and, and abused by this e Egyptian empire. And God calls a man named Moses, this redeemer, to go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, no. Uh, and so what God does is he begins to send plagues into the nation of Egypt. He sends frogs and rivers turning to blood and all sorts of different things. And the very And, and every time God sends a plague, Pharaoh goes, all right, maybe. No, I had a second thought. No, I'm not going to let him go. All right, maybe. No, I had a second thought. I'm not going to let him go. And so finally God says, okay, here's the deal. I've tried nine times to get your attention. Now what I'm going to do is send the destroyer, is what Exodus 12 calls him, and I'm going to take all of the firstborn and all of the nation of Egypt. And here's the deal. He says to the nation of Israel, watch this in Exodus 12, he says this. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb, according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, and you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of the month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted. 
its head with its legs and its inner parts, and you shall let none of it remain until morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. In other words, be ready to run. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover, God says, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike down the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. Well, who gives you the right to do this? I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you, the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No plague will fall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. In other words, here's what happens at the Passover. God asked the nation of Israel, each household, to sacrifice a lamb or a goat, take the blood of that lamb or goat, and smear it on the doorposts of their houses. So when the destroyer comes through the land of Egypt in order to take the firstborn so that God's people can be set free, he will pass over, the Hebrew word is Pesach, pass over that home such that the nation of Israel is spared, such that God's people can get out of this oppression that they're living in. This would have been part of the collective consciousness of every individual in the nation of Israel. They celebrated it every single year. It was a very ritualistic celebration. It was uh, very specific how they went through it, eating the bitter herbs and remembering God's provision in the Passover. This is something that they would have done from when they were little, little bitty kids up until the time that they were dying. I mean, everybody in the nation of Israel celebrated the Passover. In fact, uh, the first century Jewish historian, a guy named Josephus, would tell us that right about this time, there would have been about a quarter million lambs, a quarter million, 250,000, driven into Jerusalem such that they would be sacrificed and celebrate the Passover. John points at this motif of the Passover, this mold, this form, from the very first chapter of his gospel. Remember, when Jesus uh, comes to be baptized, John the Baptist says, Behold the what? Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. As the New Testament progresses, we begin to see this motif develop more and more. Paul would say, For Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Peter would say that he was with, uh, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. The author of Hebrews would write something similar. It says, he entered once for all in the holy places, not by means of goats and calves, in contrast to the Passover, not by means of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. In other words, when John points multiple times to the fact that it's the season of the Passover, that all the Jews from everywhere are coming into Jerusalem, that a quarter million lambs are being driven into Jerusalem, it is the time of the Passover. John wants us to understand that just a couple of days later, when that Passover lamb rides into Jerusalem on a donkey, that Jesus is the final Passover lamb. That that motif 
has been filled. That mold has been filled. And so now we see Jesus in a little bit of a different light. Not just a good teacher, not just a moral man, although all of those things, but, but a, a representative, a sacrifice in our place lived the life we were meant to live, died the death we were meant to die. Whereas the nation of Israel was set free from actual physical slavery in Egypt, we've been set free now from our slavery to sin. Whereas the nation of Israel remembered the Passover every year by eating the Passover lamb and taking the bitter herbs, now the community of faith gathers together and eats bread and drinks juice to remember the body of our Passover lamb given for us. He's the consummate, the ultimate, the final sacrifice, as the author of Hebrews would say, once for all. And we don't understand this role of Jesus until or unless we understand the Old Testament jello mold called the Passover. You with me? Let's talk about another one. John tells us this. That it's six days before the Passover. Look, look, one, two, three, four, five. We're through five words of this chapter so far. Five words. Didn't I tell you it was going to take us a long time to get through this? We're going to be done studying John by 2026. It's going to be great. I'm going to be excited about it. Excited about it. Some of you be with the Lord before then. Maybe I will. I don't know. It's six days before the Passover. Passover's on Friday. Let's count backwards. Thursday, Wednesday, Tuesday, Monday, Sunday, Saturday. Six days before the Passover. So what day is it? Saturday. What day is it for a first century Jewish person? It's the Sabbath day. It's the Sabbath day. Now let's talk about the Sabbath day. One of God's ten commandments. This is... I, you know, no other gods before me, I get that. Don't kill people, I get that. But remember the Sabbath and keep it holy? That seems like, wow, okay, like, that's right up there with don't kill people. Okay, okay, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. But let's talk about what God is doing in the Sabbath because it's more than just setting aside a day to nap a little bit, okay? Very much more than that. This is the one commandment where God provides a lot more instruction than some of the other ones. Like, don't murder people. I don't need to give you much more instruction. Just don't kill folks, okay? But on this one, God gives a little more instruction. Watch what he says. He, he says, six days you shall labor and do all your work. And on the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. So there's a pattern here now. Every seventh day, every seventh day. Same thing in the nation of Israel. Every seventh year, a field would lay fallow. Every seventh year, the field would get a Sabbath. On it, you shall not do any work. So on this day, you don't work. <coughs> You don't work at all. You step back, relax, and enjoy what you've done for the first six days. The other thing I love about this instruction, watch this. He says, or your son, or your daughter, or your male servant, or your female servant, or your livestock, or the uh, sojourner who is within your gates. In other words, no fudging. No fudging. <coughs> don't tell yourself, I'm not doing any work, but I'm making all my kids work. I'm making all the people that work for me work. I'm making my livestock work. And this sojourner person, I'm making them work too. But I'm not doing any work. That's not the point of the Sabbath. Don't fudge on it. Okay? Then God says this. For in six days, uh, next, next slide. For in six days, the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and then rested on the seventh day. Therefore, anytime you see a therefore in scripture, you ask yourself, what is it? Therefore. Right. God rested on the seventh day. Okay, so now for this reason, the Lord blessed 
the Sabbath, and he made it holy. And this day that Jesus is celebrating this dinner, where Jesus is celebrating this dinner, again, is the Sabbath day. It's a day of rest. It's a day where the nation of Israel was commanded to be quiet, to enjoy the blessing of God, to allow God to pour out his spirit and pour out his goodness and pour out his presence onto them. They were to make it holy, that is to say. They were to set it aside, uh, seventh day uh, of seven. They were to enjoy Sabbath rest. Now, the New Testament rolls around here. New Testament rolls around. And watch what the author of Hebrews says. I think this is really fascinating. Listen to what he says. He says, for if Joshua had given them rest, <clears throat> God would not have spoken of another day later on. In other words, if God's people in the Old Testament experienced true and complete rest, either in the promised land in Canaan or on that Sabbath day, if they experienced true rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. Does that make sense to everybody? Like, why would God talk about another Sabbath day later on or another Sabbath later on, another time of rest later on if the nation of Israel had already experienced it all? Something tells me, the author of Hebrews says, that there's something else coming because God has pointed to something else coming. Keep going. It says, so then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Easy conclusion to make. God talked about another one coming. There's another one coming. Now watch what he says, and I love this. Next slide. For whoever has entered God's rest had all, has also rested from his works, as God did from his. I love that verse. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works, as God did from his. Just as we look to God, who created the heavens and the earth and all that is in it in six days, and stood back and said, it is good God did not need a nap that day. He wasn't tired that day. He just stood back and enjoyed the blessing and enjoyed what he had created. And he commands us to do the same, to step back on the seventh of seven days, uh, uh, set aside a day, uh, to, to step back and enjoy our rest. But it's one level deeper than that. What the author of Hebrews is suggesting here is that you, because of that Passover lamb, because Jesus is spotless and without blemish, and he went to the cross on your behalf and on mine, we can step back from our striving, we can step back from our righteous works, and enjoy Jesus because Jesus is the believer's rest. Jesus offers us an opportunity to get off the hamster wheel of life, to stop striving, to stop proving to your dad that you're worth it, to stop proving to, you know, whatever magazine you see at the store that you're skinny enough. To stop proving to your boss that you can make it and you can contribute. To stop trying to prove to God that you can live up to his expectation. God comes along and goes, you can't. But Jesus did. So what? Rest. Rest. For the believer in Christ... For those who have placed their active trust in him, Jesus, Jesus himself is an opportunity to rest. So it's not only the day, it's not only the day, but it's the action here that Mary takes that would have pointed everybody in the room to a couple more Old Testament motifs. Look what Mary does. 
She therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. She takes a pound of expensive ointment and she anoints the feet of Jesus. There would have been three individuals in the Old Testament that would have been anointed with oil for their role. And again, look up at me. I know this is for a modern mindset in Canada. Like when, you know, Justin Trudeau came into office, nobody anointed him with nard, okay? That'd be pretty sweet if they did, though. You know what I mean? But, like, we don't do that now. But for the nation of Israel, for every person sitting in this room at this dinner, when she begins to anoint Jesus, immediately they would have thought of three different people in the Old Testament that they were highly familiar with. The first was the priest. Look at what the Old Testament says about the priest. You shall take the anointing oil, pour it on his head, and anoint him. And the priesthood shall be theirs as a statute forever. Thus you shall ordain Aaron and all his sons. In other words, Moses' brother Aaron, his line, his descendants were the priests of God. And they were anointed with oil in order to do their role. And their role was to represent the people to God. Represent the people to God. And every year, once a year, the great high priest would go into the most holy place. Only one guy, only once a year. He would sacrifice a what? lamb for his own sins and he would sacrifice a lamb on behalf of the people but he would do it over and over and over and he was kind of different from the people he was apart from the people he was set aside from the people but he represented the people to God see when the old and the new testament rolls around and Mary begins to anoint the feet of Jesus immediately the people that are around the table would have thought of the priest and here's how the author of Hebrews helps us understand this motif that now Jesus has been poured into the author of Hebrews writes this Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted and yet was without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace in help in time of need. In other words, Jesus is the perfect priest. He's the final priest. He's the consummate priest. He's the priest that has gone into that holy place by his own blood, not by the blood of lambs and goats. He didn't need to make any sacrifice on his own behalf, but went in as a representative of God to the people such that you and I, listen, I love this, that the author of Hebrews adds this word. You can draw near to the throne of grace with what? Confidence. Confidence. Nobody has to tiptoe in there. We walk into the throne room of grace and go, here I am. And God goes, oh, I've been waiting for you. I've been waiting for you. Why? Because you have a great high priest that's able to sympathize with all of your weaknesses. And listen closely. I think that John tells us who is at this dinner because he wants us to know that this great high priest is able to sympathize with any weakness that you have. This perfect priest. Listen who's at to who's at the dinner. Lazarus. Right? Lazarus. Who's just been raised from the dead. And everybody knows Lazarus, not as like Lazarus, the whatever, the shepherd, Lazarus, the tax collector. They know him as Lazarus, the guy who's been raised from the dead. Okay? Then Mary is at the dinner, right? Mary is the one anointing the feet of Jesus. Earlier in the gospel, we see her sitting at the feet of Jesus. Now she's anointing the feet of Jesus. Martha is at the dinner. Last time we saw her in the gospel, she was serving, and Jesus scolded her for it. Remember? 
scolded her for it. He said, no, 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 your sister has chosen the better portion. Now Martha is serving, and Jesus isn't scolding her for it, is he? She's just serving. The last, the last thing that we have here, and I think this is unbelievable. The author of the synoptic, the authors of the synoptic gospels, not John, tells us they're at the home of Simon the leper. How would you like to be known as Simon the leper? That's the worst, right? It's like the worst moniker. But listen, if they're in his home eating with him, then most certainly he's no longer a what? A leper. Jesus has healed this man. And now they're eating with him and dining with him. I want you to notice how every one of these individuals carries some of the brokenness of their past with them. Do you see it? Lazarus has been raised from the dead. Mary is breaking this alabaster ointment over the feet of Jesus. Martha, even though she was scolded by his, for serving in the past and said, look, you're just doing too much. You're hustling, bustling, running too hard. She's still serving. Simon the leper, like in his name, he's carrying the brokenness of his past. Because Jesus, as a great high priest, listen so closely, exposes, heals, and then uses your brokenness. Simon the leper, what's your name? Susan, the divorced, Thomas, the addicted, Lucas, the proud. Jesus exposes that stuff. You know, there's one person in the room that Jesus isn't using his brokenness, isn't leveraging it for kingdom good, for healing, for all sorts of great things. You know that one person is? It's Judas. Why? Because he's chosen to hide it. He's chosen not to disclose it. He's chosen not to tell the other disciples what he's been doing with the money bag. He's chosen not to come to Jesus and go, Jesus, I've kind of messed up. But all these other people, see, they've come to Jesus and they need healing. They need grace. They need a friend. And Jesus says, I will heal that and use that and leverage that so much so that we will record that in the gospel for people to write down and people to read forever. See, this is the great high priest who's able to sympathize with every one of your weaknesses. Two more motifs to go, and we're going to hustle through them. The first is prophet. Prophet. Just as the priest was called to represent the people to God, the prophet was called to represent God to the people. The prophet, think of it this way, was God's megaphone to, to holler at his people. Sometimes in a good way, sometimes in a bad way. Sometimes in a shape up, and sometimes in a you've been doing pretty good. Okay, that's paraphrased, all right? But the the prophet was God's voice to his people. And look what the Old Testament says. It says, uh, and Jehu the son of Nimshi shall anoint to, okay, all the names. Okay, and then Abel, and then you shall anoint to be the prophet in your place. Elisha shall be anointed as the prophet. Two more times in the Old Testament, the prophets are called the anointed ones. So when Mary anoints the feet of Jesus, they're not just thinking priest, that priests were anointed, and that he He is the representative of God to the people. They're also thinking prophet, that prophets were anointed. He's the voice of God to the people, not just the people to God, but he represents God to the people. Author of Hebrews, once again, helps us understand long ago at many times, in many ways, God spoke. God spoke to our fathers through the prophets. He used those megaphones. But in these days, he has spoken to us by his son. 
God's message, God's word became flesh and dwelt among us. In other words, Jesus is God's message. I've said this before and I'll say it a hundred times. If you want to get to know God, get to know Jesus. Jesus is the exact imprint of the nature of God, what Hebrews says. Jesus is the complete and total picture of how God loves and what he loves and what he hates and what makes him sad and what ticks him off and, and, and what he's about and how he works. That, that is Jesus. Jesus is the complete message of God. He is the final prophet. He is God's megaphone to you such that, now watch this, this is amazing, such that you can know God. Such that you could be God's friend. Are you joking me with that? That I can draw near to the throne of grace with confidence. And he sent his son to be his message to me to say, I love you. I'll give everything for you. He's God's message to me and to you. Let's rip through this last one and we'll be done. The last type of person that was anointed in the Old Testament was what? The king. The king. I love the story of Samuel. Samuel was a prophet around the time that the nation of Israel decided that um, they wanted a king. They chose a guy named Saul because he was tall. <laughs> I'm just trying to think of if there's any other countries that have made a poor choice for their leader. Can't think of me off the top of my head. Anyway, um, the nation of Israel, man, the nation of Israel chooses Saul because he's tall. And Saul obviously doesn't work out. Like he's a total mess in the nation of Israel. Gets him in all kinds of trouble. So God comes to Samuel and he goes, look, I have chosen for myself from the sons of Jesse the Bethlehemite a, another king, a new king. And he goes to Jesse and he goes, all right, Jesse, gather up all your sons because I've got this anointing oil and I'm going to anoint one of your sons king. And so Jesse starts to bring his kids and, 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 and Samuel goes, I'm not that one. Jesse goes, okay, here's the other one. I'm not that one. All right, well, this is the third oldest. I mean, what about him? No, not that one, not that one, not that one. He goes to all of his sons, not that one, not that one, not that one. And Jesse goes, I got no more kids left. You just told me you're going to anoint one of my sons. I got no more kids left. And Samuel goes, are you sure? And he says, well, David, I mean, he's out tending sheep. He's young and he's a ginger, red hair, David did. That's, that's true. That's biblical. I'll show you. I'll show you. Red hair. Like, what, and what in the world, like, could he, him, anointed? Look what the Bible says. And Jesse sent and brought him in, and he was ruddy, red hair. That's what that means. And beautiful eyes, and he was handsome. And the Lord says, arise, anoint him, for this is he. So then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. So what happens now in the nation of Israel is they begin to see the Davidic kingdom. They begin to see God's kingdom uh, come to play. They, 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 they begin to see Israel established as a kingdom and begin to expand and expand and expand. But David makes a series of really bad choices and that kingdom is split. The kingdom is con conquered. Jerusalem is sacked. The temple is destroyed and the kingdom is no more. There's nothing left. There's no king. There's no kingdom. And the nation of Israel would have longed for this new king just as they saw the priest, just as they saw the prophet 
prophet, just as the Passover and Sabbath became a jello mold that was empty and needed something to be poured into it, then Mary, listen, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus. Just one day later, the next day, the crowds would gather and cry out, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the what? King of Israel. Mary, it's so fascinating to me because what we would typically say is that being dead makes you no longer king. Once you're dead, you're not king anymore. That's pretty simple, I think, right? Like a dead man can't serve as king. But Mary is anointing Jesus' body for burial. In other words, there's something about Mary. I just said there's something about Mary, isn't there? Oh, shoot. <laughs> shoot. But here's the deal. You don't, you, check this out. This is, not even, this is not even my notes. I just want to tell you this. Throughout Jesus' life, right, he's telling his disciples, especially as he gets to this week where he knows he's going to the cross. He tells his disciples all the time, all the time, I got to go. They're going to kill me. They're going to string me up. And it's going to be crazy. And they're going to kill me. They're going to kill me. And all the time his disciples are going, no. Right? Right? All the time. They don't believe him. They don't buy it. You know who buys it? Mary. Mary. Like, it's almost as if, like, there's a woman listening better. I don't know. It's almost as if. And in the passage, John tells us that Jesus says, look, leave her alone. She was saving it for the day of my burial. He says, serving the poor, giving to the poor, that's a good thing. They're always going to be here. I'm not telling you don't do that. But she's anointing me for my burial. In other words, Jesus' kingship is not abdicated by his death, but it's vindicated by his death. By his very death, he becomes king. That's why she's anointing him for burial and to prepare him for his kingdom. This is why in Philippians, this is Paul now helping us understand, Jesus poured into this moment, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself, became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Death, Death, death on a cross, died, dead, dead, dead as a doornail, right? Then, next verse, therefore, because he died, because he went to the cross, God has exalted him to the highest place and bestowed him on the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Does that sound like a king to you? I'm going to conclude this way and then we're going to be done. Five motifs that we see John helping us understand. Five molds, five forms in the way that Jesus operates on our behalf. First, the Passover. Second is the Sabbath. Third, priest. Fourth, prophet. And finally, Jesus is the rightful king. He's the rightful king. My question to you this morning is simply this. Which of those do you need to be reminded about today? Or which of those do you maybe need to lean on for the very first time today? Let's start with Passover. Maybe you've never accepted Christ's sacrifice on your behalf. Maybe you've never acknowledged that he is the spotless, <coughs> 
Passover lamb without blemish, whose blood can be smeared on the doorposts of your house so that the wrath of God passes over you, so that you are reconciled to God, so that you know that you can experience that eternal life that God promises. That's placing your active trust in Jesus, trusting in his death in your place as a substitute. Passover lamb. Maybe you need rest. Maybe you need rest for your soul. And I'm not talking about a Sunday afternoon nap. Maybe you have just had it with striving, had it with trying to prove something to yourself or to your family or to your friends or to your colleagues at work. Maybe you just need to rest in Jesus and say he's enough. And he says that I am too. Maybe you need to understand Jesus as your high priest who's able to sympathize with all your weaknesses. You know, there's nothing you've ever done that Jesus has gone, man, that is real bad. That's, that, that's, that's weird bad. That's wacky bad. I didn't see that coming. He's faced all that same temptation. He said no, but he faced all that same temptation. Nothing shocks him, nothing surprises him, and he still went to the cross on your behalf such that you don't have to limp in with your head hung down doing the Eeyore thing. Oh, God, I'm sorry. I'm gonna do it. No, you can come before the throne of grace with confidence because of Christ, because you have a great high priest able to sympathize with all your weaknesses. Maybe, maybe you need to hear the truth of God through the message of Jesus. Maybe he needs to be your prophet today and be reminded of who he is. And maybe, just maybe, you need to be reminded that he's king, that he's in control, that because he died, and because he conquered sin and hell and death, and because he's now ascended to the right hand of the Father, King of kings and Lord of lords, and one day he's going to crack open the sky, he's going to put the world to rights, and his kingdom will reign forever and ever. This is what John wants us to know in, I don't know, six verses that we covered today. <laughs> Let's pray. God, thank you for this time together. Thank you for your grace to us and your mercy. We are grateful that you are a great high priest able to sympathize with all of our weaknesses. We are grateful, God, that you didn't leave us alone to figure you out on our own, but you sent your son Jesus as your perfect message. God, we are grateful that he is king of kings, and we are not. We are grateful that we can rest in him and stop our striving. We are grateful that he is our perfect Passover lamb. God, remind us today of who you are and of your grand redemptive plan. In the name of Christ, the people of God together said, amen. Let's stand and sing as we close.